For those who are visiting us uh, this morning, it's particularly good to have you here amongst us. And on Sunday mornings, we're making our way through the first epistle of John. And uh, today we're at that passage that Tim just read for us. The, the Apostle John wants to bring to believers assurance the church in his day, just as the church in every era, has all kinds of error uh, running around it. Uh, there are many falsehoods, many false teachers uh, rising up. And he wants to ground Christian believers uh, in a knowledge and an assurance that they are indeed in the faith. And he mentions in particular three marks of a genuine Christian and those things evolve around truth and love and obedience, their absolute conviction in the truth of God, their commitment to the truth of God as laid down in the scriptures and as ultimately and uh, finally revealed to his apostles. And the living out of that truth in obedience, uh, part of which is that Christian believers in obedience to the truth, live lives in the pursuit of righteousness uh, because, of course, they indeed have a righteousness from Christ which is not their own. And also, the outworking of love. They've come to know God's love for them. They've received the love of God in Christ as Christian believers and that love has an outworking in their own lives also, so these three qualities of life and character in a Christian believer and in every true believer and all three of these marks will be evident and they will be growing. If you have a, a tendency to concentrate or focus upon only one of those marks or maybe two of those marks but to the detriment of the others, the problem then is that you may become a lopsided Christian. You have a lot of emphasis over here, but you've ignored or forgotten this particular aspect to the Christian faith that John is also bringing to your attention. These are the distinguishing features of all true believers, and John is desperate to emphasise that a true believer has all three marks in his life. And we saw... Uh, at verse 10, which is where we concluded last time, that John moves from the topic that he has been covering, which is about obedience and righteousness, and he very smoothly moves back to consider again the issue of love. So he's kind of, at verse 10, he's concluding what he's just been saying. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's what he has been talking about. Nor is he who does not love his brother. And with that simple expression brings us back again to the topic of love. And he shows how the presence of these in the life of the Christian can bring assurance to a doubting heart, and we'll see that towards the end. So let's break this passage from verse 10 through to 24 down into three sections. And let's look first of all at the, the things that 
John has to say about love and hatred and life and death. And he says, for the Christian, it's about love, not hate. It's about life, not death. And we see that in those verses from 10 through to 15. And it's a simple but profound principle that John places before us in these verses. A true Christian loves other Christians. Unbelievers hate Christians. Now that second, that second part, that might sound a bit strong. Unbelievers hate Christians. Well, bear with the text and let's just see John's argument and listen and consider to what he has to say. Now, he illustrates everything that he wants to say by going way, way back into the Old Testament, almost to the very beginning, right back in Genesis, and the well-known story, to most people anyway, of Cain and Abel, two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. Abel was a believer. Cain wasn't. Abel is described here by John as being righteous. His brother's works were righteous. That's a reference to Abel. Now, how can we work out that Abel was a believer? Well, from two, two things. There is a reference there to him being righteous. And Abel is also one of those people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 from the Old Testament as being a man of faith. So we have faith and we have righteousness being spoken of concerning Abel. Now the only correct position that we can come to is that just as the Apostle Paul explains very, very clearly that Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness, that that also is the position that Abel was in. Abel didn't look to any righteousness of his own. He looked to God and his faith was in God. And God considered that faith and accounted that to him as righteousness. They were justified by faith in God in exactly the same way that you and I are. We, we turn to God, we say, there is no good in us. We come to you in faith. And that's what they did. And Abel had worshipped God in bringing a sacrifice. And Abel had worshipped in spirit and in truth. But Cain, on the other hand, did not have any of those things. And when Cain is confronted with these spiritual realities through the life of his brother, those spiritual truths, those spiritual realities that he could see in his brother Abel, they provoked Cain to envy and to anger and to hatred and ultimately to take his brother's life. Cain showed his true colours and the truth about Abel's righteousness and his own acceptance before God proved to be a serious provocation to Cain. Cain was provoked in his heart and in his soul. Now, says John, believers 
and unbelievers will always give evidence as to who they really are by means of this test, their love or their hatred towards Christian believers. Now, some of you live at home with unbelievers. Many of you work or study alongside unbelievers. And you will testify that many of those people can be, for the most part, quite reasonable, generally decent people. Uh, in your place of employment, the most, most of them seem to be, well, genuine, fairly honest, hardworking, reasonably diligent. They're capable of showing concern and empathy. They can be kind they can be caring. But to say that they hate Christians, is that not a little bit strong? But what you'll find, begin to press upon them the truths of the gospel. And when I say the truths of the gospel, I mean that you will say to them rather more than Jesus loves you. Tell them, that their very best is like filthy rags before a holy God. Tell them that there is no way that God could ever consider them good enough to enter his heaven because of their sins. Tell them that they are in their natural state condemned by God and that they face eternal punishment. Tell them that faith in Christ is the only way by which they might be saved. Tell them that God commands them to repent of their sins. In other words, tell them what the Bible really says, not what they might like to think it says, and you'll quickly discover an antagonism and a real dislike for hearing these kinds of things. And even those who normally are quite mild-mannered can very soon become antagonistic because gospel truth confronts people. The gospel is confrontational. Now, having said that, of course, that is not to say that we are to go out of our way to be confrontational with people. We don't make it our aim to instigate confrontation. We seek to be gracious and winsome when we proclaim these truths but the truth of the gospel when faithfully proclaimed confronts sinners and it is often an affront to sinners and it it often brings out great antagonism much as we would like to think it has been the UK has never really been a Christian country we've had in previous generations, strong Christian influence in this land, for which we thank God. But even during those times of strong Christian influence, the vast majority of the population were unbelievers. And underneath a facade of decency, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And when challenged with biblical truth, their true colours quickly rise to the surface, easily provoked to show that they are not on our side. 
And you only have to look at the society in which we live today to know that that is true. The world hates us. Jesus said it. The apostles say it. John repeats it here in this epistle. The world will hate you. Do not marvel, verse 13, if the world hates you. We are considered to be the intolerant ones today. We're the judgmental ones. We are the holier-than-thou ones. We're stuck in a bygone age that everyone else has moved on from. When we make clear and unequivocal statements about what the Bible teaches. But a Christian doesn't behave that way a Christian doesn't react that way a Christian behaves the opposite way towards fellow Christians kind of sounds obvious but put, uh, John makes it clear here you love your brothers and sisters in Christ you love the church you love the members of the church why because you've passed from death to life this hatred towards the thing of the gospel that that's because people are dead in trespasses and sins. That's, that's the reality of spiritual death. But you've been made alive in Christ. You have that life within you. And you've been brought to see things from a completely different perspective now because you have life and a new nature and a new mind and a new heart. The life and the love of Christ now dwells in you as a Christian. Now, John emphasizes something that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew that to harbour anger and hatred in your heart against someone is to have in your heart the very same passions and intentions which lead to murder. And because God knows your heart, you make yourself guilty before him. Christian friends, we need to be careful how we consider one another in our hearts we might not have committed physical acts against one another, but God knows the heart. And when God looks at the heart, well, he judges us in exactly the same way. But the mark of a true believer is love for their brothers and sisters. Now, this is an important thing to grasp because it actually runs very deep. We can, we can often be a, a little bit light on this issue. We can often be uh, not as serious-minded as, as the scriptures prompt us to be. I wonder, are there members of this very church who, with your own lips, you ridicule or you mock or you belittle or you criticise or you look down upon or you consider yourself to be in some way superior to them? The great reformer John Calvin made a very, a very deep observation and comment on these things. And let me leave his, his words with you and have a think about this. He said, we cannot hurt, slander, mock, despise, or in any way offend one of our brethren 
without at the same time hurting, slandering, mocking, despising Christ in him or her. We cannot be at variance with our brethren without at the same time being at variance with Christ. We cannot love Christ without loving him in our brothers and our sisters. I think that's worth thinking about. Love for the brethren is a real mark of a true Christian. So we need to be careful, don't we? If you've got something to say about another Christian, and especially if it's a member of the church, if it's not affirming, and if it's not edifying, don't say it. If you have something against a brother or a sister, go to them. Deal with them face to face. Sort it out face to face. Or keep quiet. And if someone comes to you and they're wanting to talk to you about another member, and they want to do so in a way that is not affirming or edifying, you should rebuke them and correct them there and then. And tell them, if you've got something against them, go and talk to them. Deal with it. Sort it. Because you love them. And you ought to want to be reconciled to them. So there are practical outworkings of this love. We'll consider some more in a moment. Because this is the love that is evident in the life of every Christian. Hopefully that kind of thing never needs to happen very often. Because for those who have been brought to newness of life in Christ, one of the clearest evidences, says John, is their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ and their love for the church and the truth in which it stands. Secondly, he talks a little bit about what love looks like in verses 16 to 19. By this we know love. And of course he points us to Christ because he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How can you shut yourselves off from those in need? Verse 17, if the love of God is abiding in you. Everyone understands the concept of love but in the fallen world in which we live, most people are plagued with a love for themselves which dominates everything else. Many of the things that people say they love, they love because actually they love themselves more than anything else and these things bring them satisfaction and gratification. But when the sinful soul comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, when a sinful soul experiences and recognises that depth of love that Christ has shown to them in laying down his very life for them, a great transformation takes place and the new heart and the new nature which we receive in Christ, it considers and it reflects upon the love that Christ has shown to us and a selfless, active, giving love takes over in the life of every Christian. You've probably got unbelieving neighbours where you live as I have. 
And you probably find that lots of your neighbours, even though they're unbelievers, can often be helpful and considerate. They can be neighbourly towards one another. As Christians, we have to take love to a whole new level. A whole new level. You have, haven't you, as a Christian? This is a love which is willing to pay the ultimate price for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ. And look at verse 17 and note how John puts it. When you see your brother in need. This tells us, first of all, that this is a love that has its eyes open with an active care and consideration. This is a love that's looking out for the welfare of others. It's an active love. And when you see a need, if you know you can be of help, you immediately step in to offer that help. That's the kind of love that John's talking about. Now, of course, sometimes you'll see needs that you become aware of, but you yourself, well, you know that you just don't have the resources or the facilities or the capabilities to be able to assist. Sometimes that will be true. If my roof blows off in Storm Doris and Barry comes along and offers to help me put a new roof on my house, well, I'd welcome his help. But if it was Graham, no offence, Graham, um, I'm not so sure I'd let him hammer in a single nail. There's other things I would go to Graham to first. So, in part, it depends upon the resources that I have and the abilities that I have and the opportunities that I have. I, I can't meet every single need that I ever notice because often I'm not the person that's equipped or resourced to meet that need. We understand that. John's not suggesting that every single one of us should pile in every single time we see something. Might, we might not be the appropriate person to do it, but but that is our heart and our nature and our spirit is to be on the lookout for the need that's there. Are you, as you are able, you gladly and willingly step up to assist in the welfare of the saints. So practically as a church, it's been our great joy to be able to send funds overseas. We can't always send people but we can send funds to help those who need them so that they can help others where there's great need. It's been a great joy to see this working out in many ways in the life of our own fellowship. Meals provided, help with the shopping, a lift to a hospital appointment, offering to babysit so a stressed out parent can have a break, visiting the housebound, just calling in to pray with someone who you know who's going through a tough time, just to offer spiritual support and encouragement because you know someone's struggling these things happen and it's great and it's it should that's the evidence that these things are going on in the life of a church and we need to be urging and encouraging one another on in these things and being an example to each other in all of these things these are evidences that we're truly in the faith because Christ is changing how we're able to love one another and we note also that there's an element of sacrifice here. Willing to lay down your life, ready to put yourself out 
in any number of ways for the sake of an unbeliever. Oh, it may be inconvenient right now, but love will be stronger than the inconvenience. That's what John is saying. I remember a number of years ago talking to a pastor of a church, not from Liverpool, he was in another part of the country. We were talking over a coffee at a conference one time. I can't remember the context of the conversation that got us round to this subject, but he was telling me about how he had been really challenged himself by a family in his church. A family who were not particularly wealthy, um, could never afford a regular annual family holiday. They would take the children out for days and things during the school holidays, but they would never have a regular family holiday. And having saved up for several years to go away for two weeks as a family, they became aware of a need in their church a few months before they were due to take their holiday. And it was a real need. And it was an urgent need. And it was a desperate need. And that family cancelled their holiday and used their savings to step in and help. That's what John's talking about. That's the difference that Christ can make in a sinful soul. This outgoing, love, active, real concern, genuinely concern for the welfare of others, willing to put yourself out if need be. There are some dangers and errors to watch out for as well, of course. You need to make sure that such behaviour is not restricted to your own little circle of close friends. The ones who you know will repay the favour sometime in the future. It's not that kind of love. It's very easy in the church, if we're not careful, to show partiality without really intending or meaning to, maybe. But one gets all kinds of help, but actually there's someone over here who's being neglected. So we need to be careful. We need to take care. We need to watch out for those kinds of things. And we're not to use this as an excuse that I don't take responsibility for the things that I should be taking responsibility for because I just think the church will bail me out. It's not an excuse for me to behave that way. We're not to exploit the love and kindness of others. So there are a few things to watch out for. But this is a wonderful love that John is talking about that comes into the life and experience of every true believer. It's highly likely uh, that John has probably read Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, or at least heard about it. He's probably aware of what James teaches about a genuine faith producing genuine fruit of good works in the life of a Christian. And you can see how what John is saying here is in full accord with those other passages of Scripture, which have so many other things to say on these same issues. So if you're a little bit rusty, have a read again of 1 Corinthians 13. Go and remind yourself again of what James teaches about the active faith that every Christian has. And you can have assurance that you are in Christ when you too have this same love and concern for the saints. This is one of the marks that you are a genuine believer. When you see a need and you find yourself instinctively wanting to move in and draw alongside and help them. That's a mark that you are in Christ. And before I move to the final point, just let me highlight verse 19. Because verse 19 says something very important. And by this, we know that we are of the truth. 
Hmm. Now, I've placed a lot of emphasis on truth and doctrine and correct belief in the last few weeks. And I've done that because John does. And I've done that because God's word in general does. But we need to note very carefully verse 19. To be a staunch advocate of the truth is one thing. To be a stickler for correct doctrine is great. But to do it with an absence of love like this, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, means you're nothing but a clanging cymbal and you're doing nothing else but blowing your own trumpet. Truth and doctrine are wonderful, necessary, but to have those things but not have this love. Ah. One whose life has been soaked through by the doctrine of Christ, such a man or woman will love like Christ. That's what that truth actually does. If it's impacted your soul, if that truth has impacted your heart and your mind the way it's intended to, the doctrine of Christ will make you love like Christ. And then finally, John brings to us something that many of us need at different times, and that's the grounds of our assurance from verse 19 through to verse 24, the grounds of assurance. He concludes this chapter by telling us that the fact that these things that he's talking about do describe you. You do abide in God's truth. You are growing in a Christ-like obedience and love. These bring assurance to doubting hearts. Because some Christians have a very sensitive conscience on these issues. And that's what John's talking about uh, when he says in verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Some Christians have a sensitive conscience when it comes to their own salvation. And it can seem to them as if their heart is trying to convince them that they are not, after all, a true believer. You read in the Word how a Christian should think and behave, what it is like to walk in the light and to please God. You compare yourself with other Christians around you and your heart convinces you that you seem to fall so far short you cannot possibly be saved. But, says John, God is greater than your heart. God is a wiser and a better judge than your heart. God is doing a work that he's going to finish. God has given promises which are sure and which are certain. Don't listen to your heart, listen to the truth of God. Don't trust your heart in those circumstances. Trust in God and the truth of his word. When Satan came to test, test Jesus and tempt him in the wilderness, the heart of Christ might have condemned him. Of course it didn't. But why didn't it? 
It's because Jesus looked away to his father. And Jesus looked away and pointed to the certainty of the scriptures. Never you mind that, Satan. It is written. God has said. And that was the foundation. God is greater than all the doubts that you might plant in my heart. And my confidence is in God. That's the issue. And God knows those who are his, even if sometimes you doubt it yourself. And that's the answer for the Christian. My hope is in God and in what he says. And I know that I'm not the person I used to be. And I know that change that God has brought in my life, that only he can do. And in verses 22 to 23, as that particular chapter draws to a close, you'll see that John again mentions the issues of truth and obedience and love. He starts to bring them all together again. Uh, whatever we ask and receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. He's, he's bringing all of these marks together again in these final verses. Do you have a sensitive conscience which often finds reasons to doubt your faith? Well, here are some questions to ask yourself. Let me ask you them. Do you believe on the name of Jesus Christ? Do you or don't you? It's a simple question. Do you believe in Christ? Here's another question. Is the overriding nature of your life that of keeping God's commandments as opposed to living in open rebellion against God the way you used to live? Which is it in your life now? That's two very different positions. Which side of those are you on? Think of how the world is reacting against the church today. Is that you? Or do you love the church and you love the brethren and you love the truth? Which is your heart? Have this assurance, says John. You are in the faith. If these things are marks in your life, this is the fruit that God is at work in you. And the channels are open in prayer, verse 22, because the fruit in your life gives full demonstration that you are someone who's being cleansed and reconciled and redeemed. And you can pray to God because he is your father, because he has made you his child through Christ. And the genuine believer has one great and final reality to bear in mind. How did you come to be like this? What was it that brought this great change in you as a believer? All the evidence points to the fact that you are walking in the light and are by no means continuing to walk in darkness like you used to. Despite your fears that maybe you're not, but where did all this come from? How is it that you now embrace Christ? How is it that you now embrace the truth of the gospel when the world clearly doesn't, but you do? Why? How is it that compared to how things used to be, it's obvious that the dominant pattern and direction of your life is that you're walking in righteousness in obedience to Christ. Sure, you've made some 
gaffes along the way. Sure, you've let him down along the way. Yeah, you've made some mistakes. You've had some stumbles. Sure. But the dominant pattern and direction of your life is that you're walking with Christ and in Christ. Why don't you recoil at the message of the gospel the way the world does? Why do you have this concern for other believers and for the family of God and act upon it? Where do all these things come from? By this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. God's spirit dwells within you. He himself has come and made his home in you. That's what makes the difference. That's the only thing that makes this difference. God himself in the person of his spirit, the one who is described in various ways and amongst them as both the spirit of truth and the spirit of Christ. He's made his home in you. He dwells in you. He's brought all these changes to bear in you. Some of you here as yet have no assurance of these things. But maybe your heart is telling, me, telling you that you need to. Well, you begin in repentance at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where the one who died in the place of sinners provides the only way by which you may be brought out of darkness and into his light. That you too may know him, love him, serve him. That you may walk with him. And that you too may be assured that you will abide with him forever.